You know, uh, several years ago, I was at an event where I bumped into a longtime family friend who'd known my parents and me since I was an infant, but I hadn't seen that person in, in quite some time. And we, uh, we connected, we began to chat with each other, and after I actually had spoken just a, a sentence or two, she looked at me almost confused and, and said, like, could you say that again? Could you repeat yourself? And so... Um, I began to say my words again, thinking maybe she hadn't heard it or whatever. And uh, as I was talking, she looked at me and she chuckled and she said, the body is a little different, but the voice is the same. You sound just like your father. Now, that exchange didn't come as any surprise to me because for as long as I can remember, people have observed that our appearance and our characteristics and our personalities and our behaviors match up in many ways. And as a youngster, I embraced this, and uh, I wanted to be like my dad. I wanted to follow in his footsteps, and that meant I aspired to be a pastor. That desire actually changed as I grew older, and God had to do a work to kind of bring me back around full circle. But as a preschooler, I often set up a makeshift pulpit in our living room. (laughs) And um, I, I dressed up in my official pastor outfit of old glasses, and red pants and no shirt. <laughs> don't, don't ask me why, I have no idea, but that's, that was the outfit. And, um, and I would lead services, uh, singing and a message, and sometimes I would even serve communion, some, some Kool-Aid and crackers for whatever crowd I could round up. <laughs> and, you know, many of you know what I'm talking about because you've heard the same kinds of comments down through the years. I mean, you're, you're a spitting image of your mom, or I just, I can't get over the similarities between you and your dad, or, or have you ever noticed that your kid is a lot like you? There's a family resemblance, right? Family resemblance. And um, this morning, I, I want us to consider this from a spiritual perspective. I want us to reflect for a moment on this fundamental question. As, as people observe your life, as they as they look at your character and your conduct, as they look at what's on the inside and what's on the outside, do they think, wow, you're just like your heavenly father. I cannot get over the unmistakable family resemblance. Is that what they say? And we're going to explore this concept by looking at a few verses from the Apostle Paul found in the book of Ephesians. And some of you are already there. Uh, if you're new to the Bible, this is in the New Testament, Acts, Romans, First and Second Corinthians, Galatians, and then Ephesians. And Paul wrote this letter to a first century church, and really to us as well. And his purpose was to help us grow as followers of Christ. And so look at the very end, actually, of chapter 4. We want to read the last verse of chapter 4, the first two verses of chapter 5. You there? Ephesians 4, beginning at verse 32. Paul says this. He says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Let's just bow for a moment and ask God to speak to us through these words. Father, thank you for our time together already. Thank you for worship and the opportunity to lift high your name, the name of Jesus. God, thank you now for this time to be in your word and to hear from you. 
to receive from you, to allow these truths to take root in our lives. And God, we pray that they would do that. We pray that we would be fertile soil for them to to take root and to bear much fruit. God, that you would do this work of transformation, making us like you, making us like Jesus. May that happen today, even in this hour. We pray it in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, I hope you received a sermon outline as you came in, the notes, and you'll see that the outline is really one big idea. And so uh, here's the sermon in a sentence. Here's the whole sermon in one sentence. I resemble my heavenly father when I love like I've been loved and forgive like I've been forgiven. I resemble my heavenly father when I love like I've been loved and forgive like I've been forgiven. If you, if you take away nothing more this morning except that, you'll have learned a very valuable biblical lesson. But I'm hoping that you'll stick with me and you'll follow along and take away a few other principles as we unpack this idea in more detail. So let's start here. I resemble my heavenly father. I'm seeing this in chapter 5, verse 1. Chapter 5, verse 1. You see, Paul said, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. So right here, Paul reminds us of our status as, as God's beloved sons and daughters. Uh, and he alludes back, actually, to his earlier mention. He talks about us being adopted as God's children back in chapter 1, verse 5. He talks about us being part of God's family in, in chapter two nineteen and 3. Uh, verses 14 and 15. You can look at those on your own. And we could, honestly, we could just pause right here and meditate at some length on the simple yet profound truth that by grace through faith, we're children of God. We're members of his family. And I want you to think about this this morning, that no matter what your earthly family has been like, in Christ, you're part of a spiritual family with a heavenly father who loves you and who chose you and who embraces you. That truth alone, that truth alone could keep us going for a long time. Amen? Amen. And it's on that basis then that Paul urges us to be imitators of God. Actually, the Greek word translated here as imitators is the one from which we get the word mimic. You know what a mimic is, right? I mean, it's someone who seeks to duplicate the speech and the expressions and the gestures of another person. And growing up, my middle brother, Dave, who was the world's biggest tease, he loved nothing more than to mimic me. As much as possible, he would repeat my exact words and he would follow me everywhere and he would do everything I did. And if you have a younger sibling or if you are the younger sibling, Um, then you probably know what I'm talking about. And some people have made quite a splash mimicking famous people. I think, for example, of the past three or so decades on Saturday Night Live, a show that uh, I've enjoyed watching from time to time, and the various actors who have carefully and yet comically imitated presidents Clinton and Bush and Obama and Trump. And um, to do this really well, they, they put forth much effort to learn and then to copy the speech patterns and the mannerisms of the particular president that they were mimicking. And friends, that's the vision right here in Ephesians 5 verse 1. That's what Paul's talking about. We must imitate God with, with determination, with intentionality. We, we need to work at it. 
And, um, you know, on that note, it's, it's helpful to know that the term here translated as be literally means to become. And this isn't just kind of some useless grammar lesson from a geek like me. It's actually a very important distinction. Because the verb be has the idea of a finished product. Like be an imitator, like I've arrived, I'm there, I am an imitator. Whereas the verb become has the idea of an ongoing process. Something that we're aspiring to but haven't arrived at. And so in other words, imitating God is a lifelong mission. Resembling our Heavenly Father in our character and our conduct, it happens gradually. It happens progressively. It happens little by little, day by day, moment by moment. We're always in that process of becoming. Always becoming. Never having fully arrived until that glorious day when we meet Jesus face to face. But how? How does this happen? How do we become imitators of God? How does this spiritual family resemblance actually take place? Well, I want to make a couple of suggestions. And, and this actually relates to how it works in the physical world as well. The first thing is there's the role of nature. There's the role of nature. A child receives DNA from his or her parents and thus to varying degrees takes on the appearance and the, the characteristics of their parents. And in a similar way, when we become God's beloved children, we receive the, the genetic material, so to speak, of the Holy Spirit. I mean, his gifts and his fruit begin to show up in our lives. And, and the scriptures talk about us becoming a new creation, about us having a new nature, about us putting on a new self. And as this spiritual DNA begins to take effect in our lives we increasingly resemble our Heavenly Father. I mean, this is the natural, or maybe actually it'd be better to say this is the supernatural course of events for the child of God. That's his part. But then secondly, we also have the role of nurture. We've got nature and nurture. As a child grows up in the context of a family, he or she also observes and then seeks to emulate the parent's behavior and mannerisms and patterns of speech and so on. And similarly, as God's children, we must seek to learn as much as we can about our Heavenly Father. We need to think about what, you know, what is he like and how does he think and, and how does he respond? How does he act? What, what grips his heart and all sorts of things about who he is. And then we need to seek to imitate, imitate him in every respect. Friends, that's our part. And in God's part and our part they come together in this beautiful divine human cooperative to make us more and more like our Heavenly Father, to give us this growing family resemblance. And so, what does that mean on a practical level? Just maybe jot these two thoughts down. Number one, I can't imitate without intimacy. I can't imitate without intimacy. Friends, we've got to spend time, both quality and quantity, all right? Both quality and quantity time with our Heavenly Father. We've got to meditate on His Word. We've got to communicate with Him through prayer. We've got to lift Him up in worship. We've got to quiet our hearts before Him. We have to cultivate the relationship. And I just ask you, how's that going? How's that going today, this week? cultivating that intimate relationship with your heavenly father because 
It's only when we truly know him at a deep and a meaningful level that we are able to then mimic him. All right? I can't imitate without intimacy. Number two, I can't imitate in isolation. I can't imitate in isolation. This is a community project, not a solo effort. Friends, we need each other. We need each other. We, we got to surround ourselves with fellow Christ followers who can encourage us on toward our common goal. Uh, we need spiritual support. We need it from godly friends and mentors. We need it from a, a caring small group. We need it from our larger church family, anywhere we can find it. But these people that can help us to be imitators of God. And so again, I just ask you, who's walking with you? Who are you walking with? Who's in your corner helping you to grow in Christ, to become more like your heavenly father? We must pursue intimacy. We've got to fight isolation if we want to resemble our heavenly father. And then Paul focuses in on two key areas, and I've already mentioned this, but two key areas where our family resemblance shows up. Notice first, I resemble my heavenly father when I love like I've been loved. When I love like I've been loved. This comes from verse 2, chapter 5, verse 2. He says, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. The believer's walk is a key concept to Paul all throughout his writings. And the word walk speaks of the, the manner of life, the conduct of our lives on an everyday basis. That's what he means when he says our walk. It's just kind of how we go about life. And elsewhere in this very same letter, this uh, letter to the church at uh, Ephesus, Paul calls for us to, to, to walk in a number of ways. He talks about us walking in good works. That's in, in chapter 2, verse 10. He talks about us walking worthy. In chapter 4, verse 1, he talks about us walking differently than the world in 4.17. And just a little later, he's going to talk about walking in the light and walking in wisdom in chapter 5. But here he urges God's children to walk in such a way that our lives are marked by love. Now, our culture tosses around the world the word love pretty haphazardly. And uh, in the same day, we could use that word love about anything from pizza to the raptors to a walk on the beach to our spouse, right? And, and I, hopefully we all get that there's, a, there's kind of a spectrum in those references, but the reality is we tend to have a pretty low view of love. We, we view it often very much just as like this nice, warm, fuzzy feeling. According to the biblical view, however, love is an action more than an emotion. And I know some of you know this. It's, it's a do thing more than a feel thing. British pastor John Stott, he defined genuine love as a willingness to surrender that which has value in our life to enrich the life of another. Or maybe we could say that love is the sacrificial choice to pursue the good of another rather than, than the good of yourself. That's love. And Paul here, he's instructing us to walk in love as Christ loved us. To walk in love as Christ loved us. Which means that, that God's love as revealed in the person and work of Jesus is our supreme example. That's the kind of love we're supposed to walk in. It's the paradigm we're to follow. It's the standard we're to reach for. So I think we need for a few moments 
to reflect on how it is that Christ loved us if we want to then follow that example, right? We need to think about what is Christ's love for us actually like if that is the example that we're supposed to go after. I think it's pretty safe to say that Jesus is the most loving person to ever walk the face of the earth. The four gospel accounts that we have, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're, they're just filled with glimpses of his genuine care and concern for people. And we could, we could make a big list here of how he healed and how he provided and how he came alongside the down and out and all of these ways that Jesus demonstrated his love for people, genuine, true, authentic love. But the fact of the matter is that Jesus' greatest expression of love was in his death. It was in his death. And, and that's why Paul elaborates. He says, we're to walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Do you see that? He, he's using an Old Testament uh, imagery and he's comparing Jesus' willing sacrifice of his own life to the animal sacrifices that were presented on the altar in the tabernacle and then eventually in the, in, in the temple. And when the priests offered those sacrifices, they appeased God's righteous anger and they made payment for the people's sins. That was how the people were made clean. And in a similar way, Jesus' selfless death on the cross paid the penalty of our sin. He made it possible for us to have a restored relationship with our Heavenly Father. Friends, this is love in HD. This is love in 4K. All right, this is, it's bright, it's bold. And so I'd like to put forward for us three ways the cross demonstrates the love of Christ for us. Three ways that the death of Christ on the cross demonstrates his love for us. And in so doing, how he provides a model for how we're to love others. Not in literally dying, of course, but how that demonstrates the kind of love we're to have for others. Here's the first of these three. It demonstrates the depth of his love by how much it cost him. By how much it cost him. I think we all intuitively understand the, the correlation between the degree of a person's sacrifice and the depth of their love, right? I mean, the greater the sacrifice, the greater the love. And, and as the saying goes, talk is cheap and actions speak louder than words. So the question is, how far would I be willing to go? What personal price would I be willing to pay to prove my love? I want to tell you something this morning, friends. Jesus Christ went all the way. Jesus Christ paid the ultimate price to demonstrate his love for us. It cost him everything. It cost him everything. I want you to just listen to a few verses from Philippians chapter 2. They'll be on the screen. Very well-known verses. It says, and this is Paul writing, he says, Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And I don't want you to miss what this passage is saying. Jesus was God. He possessed all of the honor, all of the glory that go along with being God. And he had every right to hold very tightly to the privileges of heaven. But instead, Jesus willingly... Friends, Jesus willingly suffered the indignity 
of becoming an ordinary human like you and me. I know we think we're pretty good, right? But that was an indignity. An ordinary human like you and me. Not, not even a person of fame or fortune. And more than that, it says he lived as a selfless servant. He was always seeking the good of others. And his humble devotion to his heavenly father ultimately led him to sacrifice his very life on an old rugged cross. The most disgraceful, the most excruciating form of capital punishment in the ancient world. And if that weren't enough, in addition to the physical torment, Jesus endured spiritual separation from his father as the the sins of the world were placed on his shoulders. Remember what he cried out? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So just to sum it all up, Jesus left the highest of highs for the lowest of lows. The cross cost him absolutely everything. Why? Because of his great love for us. Because of his great love for us. The Apostle Peter emphasizes this same point when he writes these words. He says, You were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Our ransom, our our rescue costs far more than money could ever buy. Its price was the precious blood of Jesus. So the depth of Christ's love is demonstrated, first, friends, by how much it cost him. Secondly, it's demonstrated by how little we deserve it. By how little we deserve it. Truth is, I'm actually being overly generous with my words because we don't deserve it at all. We don't deserve it at all. It it just, it doesn't add up. It doesn't make any sense. And and that's what the Apostle Paul expresses in Romans chapter 5. He says, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Back in Ephesians chapter 2, he puts it like this. He says, God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. The the point here is that Jesus loved us and he loved us deeply even when we didn't deserve it. Even when we were, as he said, ungodly sinners, even when we were dead in our trespasses. My observation is that for the most part, we take this truth for granted. We do. We, we, it's almost like we presume upon God's mercy and grace. And we, we begin to, to think that we actually do deserve the love of Christ. I mean, we're not as bad as those other people. I mean, we would never actually come out and say it in those words. But it's, it's how we practically live. And maybe you're even on that program this morning thinking that, yeah, I deserve Christ's death for me. His sacrifice. Yeah. Listen. There's tremendous freedom in acknowledging our complete lack of merit before Christ. That's the place of freedom. We deserve nothing but separation from God because of our sinfulness. 
But the, the stark reality simply shines the spotlight on Jesus and his sacrificial death. And it just tells us that the, the depth of his love, it's demonstrated by how little we deserve it. So by how much it costs and by how little we deserve it. And third, by how much we benefit from it. By how much we benefit from it. Think about it. Jesus gave everything when we deserve nothing. And now we receive everything. His sacrifice, in spite of our sinfulness, brings salvation and satisfaction. I just want you to reflect with me for a few moments on just a few of the many benefits that flow into our lives because of the love that Jesus has shown us on the cross. We were enemies of God, but now we have been reconciled. We, we have a restored relationship. We were enslaved by sin, but now its power has been broken in our lives. We can, we can actually choose to do what's right. And we were, we were spiritual orphans. But now we're part of God's great big family with brothers and sisters and a few weird cousins. None of us are those, all right? I mean, we, we, we have the, the moment-by-moment presence of God that brings comfort in our times of trouble. We've got purpose. We've got direction for our daily lives. We've got the promise of abundant life, rich and full, here and now. And we can rest in the assurance and the anticipation of our eternal future with God. I mean, I could go on and on. Psalm 103, verse 2 says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits. So the, the cross demonstrates the depth of Christ's love for us. And I want you to think about this. Have you received that sacrificial love personally? Are you a beloved child of God today because of Jesus' death in your place? I hope you are. And if you're not, why not do so today? Why not just open up your heart and receive that love? And then let's, let's put the family resemblance on display. Let's be imitators. Let's strive to follow his example in how we seek to love others. Paul writes, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. And so I want us to just to do some honest evaluation as we come to the end of this section here. Just talked about three ways that Christ's love uh, his death demonstrates his love for us. And I want you to apply that to your own life. And just think about these questions with me. How much does your love for others really cost you? How much does it really cost you? In time, in energy, in resources, in reputation, in inconvenience, in opportunities lost. I mean, is it, is it simple and straightforward to make happen? No big deal. Or is it sacrificial on your part? What personal price are you paying to love that person? Are you laying yourself down for the good of another? How about this? How much do you love those who don't deserve it? I mean, like... It's, it's relatively easy to love those who love you, to share with people who share with you, to do nice things for people who do nice things for you. I mean, kind of like this, this tit for tat, you know, you scratch my back, I'll scratch your back kind of approach to love, right? That's, that's pretty easy. But how about those who try as they might will never be able to even things out? 
Or more than that, how about those who actually are very difficult to love? I mean, maybe they're, they're apathetic as you seek to show Christ's love practically. They just kind of don't even seem to care. Or, or maybe your worlds are just so far apart that things seem awkward. Like to really go and show that person love, it's just, it's like so awkward. Or maybe they're even antagonistic toward you. Do you love those who don't deserve it? Just like Christ loved you when you didn't deserve it. How much does your love truly benefit others? I mean, does it make a tangible difference in their lives? Would, would people say, my life is better, my life is fuller, my life is more meaningful because of your love toward me? What shifts do you need to make in your love for others to better reflect Christ's love for you? That's the key question to think about as we seek to apply this portion of God's word to our lives. I'm trusting that God by his spirit will do that in each heart. And so we're, we're talking about family resemblance. We're talking about being imitators of God. We've learned that I resemble my heavenly father when I love like I've been loved. And now I resemble my heavenly father when I forgive like I've been forgiven. When I forgive like I've been forgiven. Look back at the last verse of chapter 4, verse 32. Be kind to one another, Paul says. Tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. And as we, as we saw in verse two, again, be really means become because we're works in progress, right? We're slowly but surely becoming more like our heavenly father. And this family resemblance shows up in a couple of ways. He says first to be kind. And kindness is, is showing that sweet disposition toward others to, to put love into action into very practical ways, very useful ways. And then he says to be tender-hearted. You're going to love this. Tender-hearted literally means to have healthy intestines. Like, that's because the Greeks understood their emotions to be located in their internal organs, right? And when you actually stop and think about it, it, it makes sense because we actually talk about feeling things deeply in our gut, right? It's like I'm feeling that right in my gut. Whether it's a good feeling or sometimes a not-so-good feeling, I feel it in my gut. That's, that's literally what tender-hearted means. But more figuratively, it refers to those feelings of genuine compassion for others. And we don't have time to pull this apart and explore this in any detail, but it's worth considering what a difference it would make in our world. What a difference it would make in our church. What a difference it would make in your home. How much more we would resemble our Heavenly Father if our interactions, if our conversations were bathed in kindness and tenderheartedness. I mean, it's really that simple. But because we're human, we fall short, right? And um, instead of displaying kindness and tenderheartedness, we often display many of the sinful patterns that that Paul was talking about just in the paragraph before this, at the end of chapter four, and he mentions all sorts of things like falsehood and, and theft and corrupting talk and bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander and malice. And, and so we frequently find ourselves in the position of needing to make things right in our relationships. All of these things come in and mess it up. And so we need to work to make things right. 
And so that's why Paul exhorts us here to, to forgive one another as God in Christ forgave you. Forgiveness is the decision to release a person from the obligation that resulted when they injured you. It's, it's laying down a grievance, letting go of the right to take revenge, and then leaving the outcome with the Lord. That's what forgiveness is. And this is, this is absolutely crucial because there simply are no enduring relationships without forgiveness. There aren't. There's no relationship that can, that can last the test of time without forgiveness because we all screw up in so many ways. And so this is an essential quality if we're going to live in harmony with one another. And we all know that to be true by our personal experience. And this is what the verse is calling from us. And notice also the, the connection to chapter 5, verse 2 in that word as. Just like I'm instructed to love others as I have been loved, here I'm to forgive others as I have been forgiven. I mean, it, that is an astounding task to forgive as God in Christ forgave me. Do you recognize the extent to which God has pardoned you? Do you actually understand what his, what his forgiveness is like? And, and I think one of the best places to kind of get some insight into this is the book of Matthew chapter 18. And if you want to turn there with me, you can do that. Uh, it's going to be on the screens as well. But in chapter 18 of the gospel of Matthew, just to set the context, Jesus has been teaching about resolving conflict and about granting forgiveness and about pursuing reconciliation and how this is so important in our relationships one with the other. And the apostle Peter pipes in, as he often did, beginning at verse 21. And he asks, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Peter's like, he's trying to score some brownie points here by making this suggestion. It's, it's almost as if he expects Jesus to say like, wow, Peter, I have never heard, I've never heard anything like this. Like, your suggestion is just so off the charts. Forgive seven times? I mean, like, who can imagine such a thing? You are a champ. Way to go. That's what Peter's looking for in this comment that he offers. But that's not how Jesus responds. Instead, he says, I do not say seven times, but 77 times. In other words, he says, Peter, you are missing the point entirely. I mean, if you've got a tally sheet on the fridge, you don't understand my heart. Don't keep track. Uh, forgiveness isn't something that's to be counted or measured out. It is to be offered without limit. That's what Jesus is saying. When you, when you think you've already gone the extra mile, your journey of forgiveness is just getting started. And then to drive home this point, Jesus tells a story. I love how he does that. He tells a story and he makes an incredible point. He does this beginning at verse 23. He says, Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now, just for perspective, in that era, one talent was roughly equivalent to 20 years' wages. 
All right, one talent, 20 years wages. So a debt of 10,000 talents was more than any person could ever hope to repay in many, many, many lifetimes. I mean, in today's world, think multiple billions of dollars. That's the debt. Pretty dire situation, right? And the story continues. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. Of course, this guy couldn't pay up, right? He owes billions of dollars. And so the king basically said, let's cash him out. Let's cut our losses, get what we can and move on. Be done with it. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. Nice try. Not a chance. And out of pity for him, it says, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Is this not like, like an incredible turn in the story? It's totally unexpected, totally amazing. The king decided to show mercy and he completely released the servant from all of his debt. No more obligation. Just wow. And then notice what happens next in verse 28. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. Now again, some context. A denarius was a day's wage. So the fellow servant's debt was a significant amount of money, about a half a year of earning. But compared to what the first servant owed the king, it's a drop in the bucket, right? Billions of dollars, half a year's salary. The servant who had been forgiven the immense debt was himself not very forgiving. And it says, in seizing him, he began to choke him saying, pay what you owe. Give me my money. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. I mean, it's deja vu. The exact same thing the first servant had said. This new servant says the same thing. I mean, can you believe the guy who had just been forgiven billions of dollars was now squeezing his friend for a few thousand? I mean, it's, it's unbelievable. Verse 30, he refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. When the king found out about the servant's harsh action, he was enraged and rightfully so. It says, then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have had that mercy on your fellow servant? Just like I had that mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also, my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. That last line haunts me. I mean, we're exploring the idea that I'm to forgive like I've been forgiven, but the reverse also seems to be true. That in, that in some way, God's forgiveness of me is related to my forgiveness of others. And what that tells me is that forgiveness is an absolutely indispensable quality for the follower of Jesus. There's just no way around it. It's got to be there. And we could spend an entire message series talking about the ins and the outs of forgiveness and steps to take and steps not to take and the excuses we make instead of forgiving and 
how forgiveness has both a kind of a crisis point and then an ongoing process. All of these things, really important. But I, I want to just leave you here very briefly with three takeaways from this story about God's forgiveness. Three takeaways that we should strive to imitate in our forgiveness of others. First thing is this, that God's forgiveness is fast. God's forgiveness is fast. The king doesn't waste any time in releasing the servant's debt. He, he doesn't sit and stew for some time about how he's been wronged. He doesn't, he doesn't string the servant along and make him suffer before kind of working things out. That's how we often operate. Kind of make them pay. Yeah, we might get around to the forgiveness, but let's just slow it down and make them suffer. That's not how God works. It's immediate. He grants forgiveness fast. Second, I see that God's forgiveness is full. There's an old Garth Brooks song that says, we bury the hatchet but leave the handle sticking out. That's true, isn't it? Sometimes we like to keep the hurt close by in case we feel the need to pull it out again. Maybe to our own advantage down the road. I can bring that back out. But thankfully, that's not how God treats us. He doesn't, he doesn't do anything halfway. He doesn't hold anything back. He wipes the slate clean. He starts fresh. The king cancels the servant's entire debt. It was massive. God's forgiveness is full. Last, God's forgiveness is free. And by that, I don't mean it costs nothing. We've already, we've already talked about how much Jesus' death, which is what brings us forgiveness, how much that cost him. But what I mean is this, that he bears the entire cost so that his forgiveness is freely offered. It's freely available. It's freely obtainable for any who would want to receive it. He paid the entire freight so that it could be free. And I just ask, are we that free in granting forgiveness to those who've hurt us? Or do we pick and choose who gets in on the blessing? You know, I wish this weren't the case, but probably all of us have at least one broken relationship where the healing power of forgiveness is desperately needed. And so what is God saying to you in this moment? What step do you need to take to imitate his example of pardon? I'm going to invite you to bow your heads and your hearts as we close. Paul says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Be, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. I resemble my heavenly father when I love like I've been loved and forgive like I've been forgiven. What's God saying to you this morning? How is he calling you to respond? I just want you to talk to him about that. The worship team is going to sing a song of commitment over us that really gets to kind of the heart of this. And the, the bridge says this. It says, oh Lord, change me like only you can. Father, I pray, make me more like Jesus. Make me more like you, God. Church, let this be our prayer.